0: The Daily Rios for September 1st, 2015. It's a new month, a new start. So get out there, back up your phones, change your passwords, do all those things you've been meaning to do now at the start of the month before we get too far into it. All right? I always like to use the first of every month to do those things. It's an easy reminder, right? And uh, I also like the start of the new month, because that means I get to check off those episodes that are monthly regulars here on the Daily Rios, including previews, although I haven't picked mine up just yet, and today's episode, Timeline Tuesday. Now, I didn't record last night because it was the first day of school for me, and I taught two classes and realized I hadn't prepared my voice. uh, By the middle of the first class, I was starting to feel a tenderness. By the end of the second class, I could feel that my voice was really tired. And so this episode, you know, might sound a little different because of that. But I will do my best to soldier on. All right, so it's Timeline Tuesday. I've been compiling a timeline of comic book anniversaries for years, for magazines, letter columns, articles, my own purchasing notes, I can remember senior year in college typing away on my roommate's dot matrix printer or whatever it was, the printer that has that continuous paper feed, right? Um, I probably have those notes somewhere. And what I do is I use all of that info, and I used it to create the trivia game back in 1999, I think that's when it was, uh, right before I moved back to Philly for the first time, or second time, I should say. And... I also used a lot of that information for my AOL homepage back in 2001, which I took snapshots of and dumped on the Daily Rios website. And I'll post a link on the uh, show notes if you want to see that. So using all that info, I can go month by month and point out comic book titles, characters, teams, sometimes even creators, as they celebrate 10 years, 25 years, 50 years, and sometimes even 75 years of comic book history. It's a fun way for me, at least, and maybe for you, to think about just how long some of these creations have been around. It's also a way to discuss titles or characters that maybe I don't get a chance to talk about regularly. Sometimes it's a surprise to me, especially when I realize some of these characters have been around for 50 or 75 years. It's pretty crazy. So this month is September. It is a busy month, People were creating in the month for the month of September. So we start with 10 years ago, September of 2005. These are actual release dates, these are not cover dates. All right, Captain America 11, written by Ed Brubaker with art by Steve Epting. Letterer was Randy Gentile, colorist was Frank D'Armada. It had been teased for a few issues, possibly even revealed that Bucky. Bucky Barnes, the youthful companion of Captain America from World War II, II, thought to be one of only a few Marvel characters that would probably always stay dead, was actually alive. Not only was he alive, he was the Winter Soldier. This is the issue that reveals all of those details with flashbacks and a mixing in of older sequences from older comics. Now... I still have yet to read this arc. I know, I know, it's crazy, it's weird. I read the first issue, you know, except for a handful of issues leading up to issue 300, and the I think it was called "The Adventures of Captain America" the miniseries with art by Kevin Maguire, at least for the first couple of issues in the early 90s. I don't really read a lot of Captain America comics. Uh, this particular volume, I did read the first issue. I don't know. I was sort of put off by the tone of the stories. Uh, it felt really heavy. The coloring was kind of dark and muddy. The Steve Epting art... You know, I was a fan of Steve Epting's art during the Brown Jacket Avengers run, during Operation, Ge- Galactic, uh, Operation Galactic Storm, or Blood Ties with the X-Men. You know, they, his artwork was looser. It was really kinetic. So when I saw this art... It came across a little stiff, a little posed. I couldn't get into it. I read one issue. That was it. Now, I know. I'm crazy for thinking that. I know I would enjoy the story, so someday I will read it. But it has been 10 years of Winter Soldier being out there in comics and then eventually putting him onto the big screen, right? I don't always think that transition was as finely handled as it as the story was in comics, the, remote, the emotional resonance of this, the discovery that Bucky was the Winter Soldier in the movies fell flat. And I understand it wasn't really the point of the movie, although it was the title of the movie. <laughs> but I had a lot of non-comic book reading moviegoers saying to me, who was that? Why did it matter? I think they missed an opportunity in Captain America 1 and um, the first Avenger in keeping Bucky all the way through to the end. So that he was in the battle for the whole time and somehow got sucked out of the plane at the end, kind of like his origin story. And then Captain America falls to, you know, his icy grave. I think then we might have had a little more weight. I thought the weight that was in the movie was probably because we know the story and not always necessarily because the movie was uh, structured in a way that helped tell that story. Not for non-comic book, book, comic book readers, anyway. Um, you know, I think Marvel Studios was banking on that, uh, you know, we would come with a lot of preconceived notions and that it wouldn't matter. So, anyway. Um, Captain America 11, happy 10 years of, of a resurrection, Bucky Barnes. <laughs> also 10 years ago, 2005, DC started to release their version of Marvel's Essentials line called Showcase Presents. And they would reprint mostly Silver Age material and then later Bronze Age, stuff that wasn't reprinted Reprinted as archives, I guess. The first two were Green Lantern Volume 1 and Superman Volume 1, both offered at $9.99. And then eventually it went up to $14.99 and maybe $15 or 16 dollars this announcement was met with a lot of cheers. People were really excited about it. I only have a few myself Amethyst, Captain Carrot, Two Silver Age Teen Titans. I can't believe I don't have the Ambush Bug one. They're great for reading, but the black and white art for me, it was meant to be colored, right? It was meant to be colored pages. So it's not enough for me to have for um, when I really want to get into like historical resource purposes. I need the color. I need the real deal. Now, if I just want to read them and that way I don't have to read the issues, if I had them, great. But um, I I tend to like the issues. Anyway, it was a great deal. $10, awesome. Then they would jump up. If I see them at conventions cheaper, I think about picking them up and maybe that's something I'll start doing. So Showcase Presents. I don't even think they do them anymore. Um, Not that I remember. Um, So yeah. Those are, no, I think they do. Yeah, they've, they've put out a few here and there. All right, also 10 years ago, Drax number 1 of 4 by Keith Giffen artist Mitchell Breitweiser. This miniseries comes off of Keith Giffen doing the last six issues of the Thanos series at the time. And this is, you could say, the second stepping stone towards Annihilation. This miniseries is the Drax that uh, his design is relevant to today. It introduces Cammie, the character of Cammie, who was in Avengers Arena. Um, and a few short months after this miniseries, we would get Annihilation, the Annihilation Prologue, which was the baby of Andy Schmidt. He understood the power of Giffen Um Keith Giffen was a wonder boy at this point, both for Marvel and DC and for Boom Studios and maybe elsewhere. So if you know of Annihilation and you want to get some prologue stuff, I would get Drax the Destroyer 1-4 through from 2005. This is the stuff, in my mind, that made Marvel Cosmic popular. Um, Not the Bendis Guardians of the Galaxy run, but everything prior to it. Thanos, Keith Giffen on Thanos... Drax Annihilation, uh, The DNA Guardians of the Galaxy Run, and so on. So, thank you, Andy Schmidt. All right, also coming out 10 years ago, real quick, fell number one for only $1.99 by Warren Ellis and Ben Templesmith. It had a slightly smaller format in page count from image. It took three years to put out nine issues, but it was a worthwhile story. And it was a worthwhile execution, and it was an experiment to see if people would come to a cheaper comic um, by a really creative creative team. I know Casanova certainly benefited from this format as well. So that was ten years ago, and also there was Green Lantern Corps Recharge, one of five by Jeff Johns, Dave Gibbons, Patrick Gleason, Christian Alame. Since Hal Jordan has had his rebirth, and his series it makes sense that the core would be next, and they would have a miniseries, the Recharge miniseries, and eventually would kick off into a series on their own. New Avengers 11 was The Mystery of Ronin by Brian Michael Bendis and David Finch, and we would discover who that character was, and then that identity would be used by several other characters. And Century Number 1, an eight-issue series by Paul Jenkins and John Romita Jr., which I probably knew about, But I saw it and thought, I think I might want to read that sometime. So, this is not the century series that introduced the character. It was a series that was concurrent with New Avengers. Um, DC had put out Day of Vengeance number six, OMAC Project number six, and JLA 119, all of which would lead into Infinite Crisis number one. And next month, I assume we'll get Rand Thanagar War number six and Villains Villains United number six and JSA Classified number four. All of these final issues, when I was reading them, when I was reading the issues leading up to them, I thought I knew what the story was. All of these final issues had cliffhangers or story twists that suddenly you said, Oh, because keep in mind, we didn't really know what Infinite Crisis was going to be about. We had ideas. And maybe we saw um, promos or previews by now. But I remember thinking, oh, you know, the DC Universe is being attacked by all these OMACs and magic is going crazy and there's a war out in space and all the villains are being united under Lex Luthor. Then you got to all these last issues and you went, oh, that's not what the story about. Suddenly it's about a story that took place in 1985 and it connects with the crisis and ah, it was just ah, such a good time. Such a good time. So there you go. That takes care of 10 years ago. Let's go to 25 years ago, September of 1990. Lobo, The Last Zarnian, issue one of four, Keith Giffen, speaking of, Simon Beasley uh, and Laverne Kinzersky was the colorist. Lobo was co-created by Giffen and Roger Sliffer. He gets his first four-issue mini mini-series spinning out of the Legion series, and the Legion is actually in this title. I actually managed to finally collect the last issue I needed, and I have it in my collection waiting to be read. So that was uh, 25 years ago. New Titans 71, The Titans Hunt Begins. Kind of makes sense why they are they're doing a new Titans Hunt series, because 25 years ago... <laughs> We got the one by Marv Wolfman and Tom Grummet and Al Vay, Adrian Roy. This is one of those comics in 1990, along with a few other things that got me back into comics because I thought, what the heck is going on? I can't remember if I got this by subscription, but, um, you know, the Titans are scattered. Um, I don't know if we know in this issue if the Wildebeest Society was the cause of it, but um, they were celebrating their anniversary, and it comes down to Nightwing having to corral a team of supporting characters like Deathstroke and Arella and Phantasm and Panther, you know, because they, they're going to last long. And he has to solve the mystery of where are the Titans. It's the, the Titans hardly were even present, at least the current Titans. We would get Aqualad. We would get Golden Eagle. But um, this was it. And this went on for a long time, and it was... It was convoluted, but uh, it was exciting, I have to say, and that Tom Grumman artwork was pretty sweet. So I'm sure I will talk about this on The Tower, you know, in about five to six years. Uncanny X-Men 270, uh, the extinction agenda starts with Cameron Hodge and Genosha, Jim Lee, Chris Claremont. This would eventually lead to Magneto and the Savage Land, the Muir Island Saga... And in less than a year from now, we get Jim Lee, his title on uh, X Men, the newly formed X Men title. So X Men, Uncanny X Men 270 was 25 years ago this month. Also 25 years ago this month, New Kids on the Block, a bunch of one shots from Harvey Comics. It's kind of silly. Uh, Nomad, one of four by Fabian Nicieza, penciler James Fry. This is Jack Monroe, and would lead to his 25-issue Nomad series. And then we also had Mark Schultz's Cadillacs and Dinosaurs from Epic, which would last six issues. It was the uh, Xenozoic Tales, I believe it was called prior to that. Let's go to 50 years ago, September of 1965. The team that originally appeared in Flyman number 31, 32, and 33 gets their own title, The Mighty Crusaders, featuring Black Hood, The Comet, The Fly, Fly Girl, and The Shield. So it's not the first appearance of the characters, but 50 years ago in September, it is the first appearance of them in their own title. And this was published from Archie Comics, the Red Circle line. I believe they were also called the Mighty Comics or something like that. They would eventually get uh, wrapped up into... DC, and now they're being published to this day, um, with Back at Archie. It was a story called The Mighty Crusaders versus the Brain Emperor, written by Jerry Siegel. Penciler was Paul Reinman, and the inker was Joe Gaella. And it would only last seven issues. So, The Mighty Crusaders, 50 years old in September. Also 50 years old in September, Thunder Agents. Thunder Agents, number one from Tower Comics, uh, Dynamo, no Man, The Iron Maiden, Menthor. It would run for 20 issues and a short-lived spin-off series of some of the uh, more popular characters. And it was by Wally Wood with uh, scripter Len Brown. And it was supposed to be uh, based on the success of... Uh, The spy-fi television series, The Man from UNCLE and James Bond, um, the film Thunderball, right? Makes sense. Um, And it had creators such as uh, Reed Crandall, Gil Kane, Mike Esposito, Mike Sikowski, Frank Giacola, and Dan Atkins, as well as Wally Wood. So that team, 50 years old in September. I also had to look up Tower Comics because I wasn't aware that that's the the publisher that uh, put out Thunder Agents at the time. Most comics at the time were $0.12, 32 pages. Tower was putting out books that were $0.25, 64 pages, and the format was very similar to the Golden Age where there would be independent stories and then the team would form, uh, they would all come together for the final story. Also 50 years ago today, In a story called If This Be My Destiny, which has a lot of uh, relevance or a lot of um, foreshadowing, Amazing Spider-Man 31, Stan Lee, Steve Steve Ditko, the first appearance of Gwen Stacy, Harry Osborn, and Professor Miles Warren. All of who would become become very important to Peter Parker. Again, when you realize a lot of this stuff is 25 years old or 50 years old or 75 years old, you start to realize, oh, well, that's why they made a movie. That's why there's a new comic. Um, Case in point, the next one, Fantastic Four, 45, Stan Lee, Jack Kirby, in a story called Among Us Hide the Inhumans. We've already seen Gorgon and Medusa last issue. Now we get the first appearance of the Inhumans, Black Bolt, Crystal, Karnak, Lockjaw, and Triton. Is it any wonder that they are all over the Marvel comics these days and that they're getting multiple titles in October and that they are featured in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D.? And then 50 years ago, one of my favorite ex-villains appears for the first time in X-Men 14, The Sentinels. Stan Lee, Jack Kirby again, and also first appearance of Bolivar Trask. I love the Sentinels. I think they're a great X-Men villain, um, X-Men concept when they're used correctly. Apparently this issue, X-Men 14, because it is the first appearance of the Sentinels, it has that newspaper clipping of, you know, what if the mutants took over the world, where they are enslaving humans and whipping them, which was the basis for Quentin Quire during the Grant Morrison run. So that little snippet 50 years ago, would eventually have relevance, uh, you know, in the mid-2000s, whenever New X-Men was. Also 50 years ago, Doom Patrol 99 uh, by writer Arnold Drake, penciler Bob Brown, is the first appearance in a backup story of Beast Boy. Happy 50th, Beast Boy. Yeah, 50 years ago, he uh, first appeared. Would eventually join Doom Patrol. He would join Teen Titans, Titans West, he would join New Teen Titans as the cha- as Changeling, and that would become Beast Boy once again, and now he's all over cartoons and um, comics, etc. So happy 50th there. Speaking of the Titans, Showcase 59 is the Teen Titans' third appearance, although it is only the second time that they've actually used the name Teen Titans. And then after this issue, which was by Bob Haney and Nick Carty and editor George Kasdan, they'll jump into their own Silver Age series. And then we have some quick hits for 50 Years Ago. We have Adventure Comics 338, the first appearance of Glorith of Baldor, which is, uh, she's an agent of the Time Trapper. Detective Comics 345, first appearance of Blockbuster, created by Gardner Fox and Carmine Infantino. This is um, the Blockbuster that would eventually be killed in Legends in 1986 or 87, and then his brother would become the new blockbuster in the Will Payton Starman run, and that blockbuster would make a deal with Neuron during Underworld Unleashed, and he would go on to become the big bad for Chuck Dixon and Scott McDaniel's Nightwing series. Also 50 years ago today, Mystery in Space 103, first appearance of Ultra the Multi-Alien, and Superman 181, the first appearance of Superman of 2965, who was known as Clark Ken T5477, and he worked for the Daily Interplanetary News. And finally, 75 years ago, September of 1940, All American Comics number 20, although she made her first appearance. In All American Comics number three, in issue 20, Ma Hunkle becomes the Golden Age Red Tornado. She would put the pan on her head and wear wool pajamas, not the pan, the pot, and she would have a cape. And, she, you know, we probably thought she was going to stick to the Golden Age, but she actually shows up in the Jeff Johns JSA run, and maybe even after. And then we would get her. Is it her granddaughter that becomes Cyclone um, based off a character in Mark Wade and Alex Ross's kingdom come? So yeah, my uncle red tornado, 75 years in Superman number seven by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, with inker Wayne boring in a story called the three kingpins of crime. We get the first appearance of Perry white, although he was known as just white at the time. <laughs> um, so you would think I would think that that would mean that this is the beginning of the Earth One stories, but there's, you know, there's a lot of crossover there. I mean, it is only Superman 7 after all. But George Taylor is replaced by Perry White. I don't know if the Daily Planet was called the Daily Planet yet or was it still called the Daily Star. So Happy 75th Perry White. We have uh Human Torch number 1, although in the Indicia it's called number 2, and Marvel Mystery Comics number 13. Both of them apparently fight it out for the first appearance of Toro, the sidekick of the Human Torch. But in Marvel Mystery Comics 13, it's the first appearance of the Golden Age Vision. And I loved when all of those Golden Age characters came back, especially when Fabio Nicieza used them in his run on Thunderbolts as part of the V Battalion, I guess they were called. Um, he used... He used them either part of the battalion or as a group. I can't remember. But I know he used like the angel and the vision and what was the dark destroyer or something like that. It's always fun when Marvel taps their golden age characters. Um, and then the last one for today's episode National Comics number five from Quality was the first appearance of Quicksilver who would go on for 73 issues or so, or 70 issues, all the way up to 1949 in National Comics. Now, obviously, this isn't the Quicksilver from the Marvel comics. This is the character that would eventually become Max Mercury. He was known as Max back in the day, in the Golden Age, and Mark Wade would update him and keep all of those stories... Uh, but he would call him Max Mercury, and he would have other identities, and he was just really long-lived, and he was sort of the Zen master of speed. So he was Quicksilver in the Golden Age up to 1949. He had a few appearances in All-Star Squadron and Young All-Stars and a number of other places, but it would be Mark Mark Wade who would transform him into this, uh, you know, this other speedster for the DC Universe, and and as a mentor to Impulse at the time in the 90s. Uh, The art on this book was by Charles Mazogian. Mazogian. So Quicksilver, 75 years in September. Whew, my voice made it. All right, so that's it. That's The De La Rios. That's episode 307 for today, September 1st, 2015. Let me know if any of this... Sparks any discussion or any thoughts, you can send me an email, peter at com, or leave a comment on the website. You can always leave an iTunes review as well. And I just want to know, you know, did any of this, were you reading any of this at the time? Did you know about any of this? Is there anything I missed that you feel of major importance? I don't really get to touch on independent comics too much because I'm not as knowledgeable, especially when you go back 25 years, but I try to do the best I can here and there. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Thanks for listening, and we will talk to you tomorrow.